Um, well, it's good morning, you guys. It's great to see you guys. If you guys will turn to Hebrews chapter 4, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it was actually kind of nice this morning without a band just to hear you guys singing. And I was thinking, uh, as much as a great aim and victory can unite a uh, horde of people, uh, as it did last night against a common foe, uh, for a group of people that frankly come from a bunch of different backgrounds, a bunch of different cities, if you took us all out to eat after service, the likelihood that we could all agree on one place is incredibly unlikely, right? Um, and so it's really just amazing. It's fun to hear you guys singing and worshiping, declaring, and agreeing upon the same thing, that we worship a great king. And so it's really cool this morning. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we're going to be verses 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. Um, I'm going to read actually to chapter 5, verse 3 this morning, and we'll jump in. Writer of Hebrews says, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses." And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. We pray with me this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that your son is our high priest, and that we do have one who mediates, who stands in between, and who allows us to have access and has, allows us to have confidence to approach you this morning. Father, we ask this morning that as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would highlight for us the very nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that you would allow some truths that are familiar, Lord, to go deeper in our lives. That you would even take some assumptions that we have and that you would flip those upside down. Father, I pray that you would give us a greater freedom, a greater confidence, a greater peace to approach you and come near to you no matter where we are this morning, Lord. Father, I pray that you would take me and that you'd use me just as you see fit and that you would allow this time to be just all that you would hope it to be. Pray that you would accomplish things in our lives that you're desiring to do and that you would allow this to be a pivotal moment for us this morning as we gather around your word and as we gather as a community, Lord. Father, we ask that you would do these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I've mentioned this uh, before to you guys, but a lot of y'all may know that for me, junior high to early college was a barren wasteland of romance, all right? Uh, There was a lot of heartache, uh, a lot of loneliness, and yet you would never have guessed that that would have been the route I would have taken because I started romantically so well, all right? Sixth grade, first girlfriend, Lindsay Andrews, all right? Uh, Cute, blonde girl, very popular. I thought I had my ticket to popularity, and I had my first girlfriend, sixth grade, okay? Uh, This girl was best friends uh, uh, with uh, a girl that lived next door to a lot of the friends I hung out with, and so in sixth grade, she and her friend would often be hanging out next door to a place with some friends that I hung out, and we would often be, as a bunch of guys, playing football, and whenever Lindsay was there, I had all of a sudden a new dose of courage and manliness, and I would try to dominate in the front yard, football speaking wise, okay? My 80-pound frame knew no limits physically, and I would accomplish feats just to garner and to attract her attention, all right? And yet, I never, ever approached her, and never, ever would I say a word to her, all right? I dared not come before her greatness, okay? I, I didn't even send her a note, but I did in sixth grade what every other sixth grader did like me. I sent someone else on my behalf, all right? Uh, I had a good friend, Matt Jenkins. He was accomplished. He was uh, well-known in the ways of dating and the art of communicating with the opposite sex. And so I sent him on my behalf, all right? I remember this Saturday morning as if it was yesterday, and Matt calls Lindsay up, and he goes conversationally to a place that I could not go. He asked the question I could not ask, and she gives the answer that I did not expect, all right? And he asked her, hey, would you like to be Trey's girlfriend? She says, yes, all right? 
And I felt pretty good, all right? That day was probably the best day of my childhood up until that point, all right? And that day kind of went right along in sixth grade with the day I got my bike, and I could bike to school for the first time, all right? It was all about freedom and autonomy. Kind of went right along the day, too, that I got my car, sophomore year of high school, and then the day I arrived here at Texas A&M University, all right? And those were four critical, pivotal moments for me in my life, all right? But that day, sixth grade, it's a great picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do for us, all right? What does elementary school dating have anything to do with our passage this morning, all right? I think what Matt Jenkins did for me is what Jesus Christ does for us, all right? Matt Jenkins, for me, was, romantically speaking at least, the mediator. He was the one who went in between, all right? He represented me, and he went where I could not go, and he did what I could not do, and he covered over every fear, every inadequacy, and every weakness I had as he represented me, all right? As we look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is our mediator. He is the one who stands in the gap and he goes where we cannot go and he does what we cannot do so that we can be reconciled and brought into a relationship that's far more better than romance. It's a relationship with God himself. So we're going to see this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. In many regards, if you look at Hebrews 4, you're going to see the theme of the book of Hebrews is again right here centered. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 is going to be a pivot point in the book as we go to a whole new section and a whole new theme throughout the book. And yet in many regards, it's going to be the same song, but a new verse for the book of Hebrews. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Look with me, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The theme of the book of Hebrews as we've been looking all semester and as we'll see all next semester as well is, is a plea and a charge to the people that this book is being written to to hold to Jesus Christ, to continue to hold confidence and continue to cling to Jesus Christ and to not forsake him, to not turn away from him. In many regards, that theme is going to continue to be woven through this next section, but Hebrews 4, 14 and on really opens up a new chapter, so to speak, in this book. Same song, new verse, and the new verse, so to speak, is going to be now Jesus Christ's superiority as our high priest. He's going to be superior to every other high priest that has preceded him, and he's going to do for you and I what we could not do, and he's going to take us to God the Father in a way that we could not approach apart from what he'll do on our behalf. Jesus is going to be our great high priest, and the writer of Hebrews is going to begin to unpack that this morning and actually unpack that for the next six chapters, all right? So really we get, in a sense, the theme of the Hebrews continuing on, that we would cling to Jesus Christ because he's better, but we're going to get a new section, a new theme of that uh, bigger theme in which we're going to see that Jesus is the best priest. If you guys have been walking with us this semester to kind of recap for you where we've been, Hebrews 1 and 2 is that Jesus is better than Who? Moses, three and four, great, but the angels, one and two, right? Jesus is better than the angels, chapters one and two. Chapters three and four, where we've been recently, is that Jesus is better than Moses. So as we kind of walk through now, chapter four and on, we're going to see that Jesus is better than Aaron, the high priest, and in fact, he's better than every other high priest that's preceded him. And for the next six chapters, really, the writer of Hebrews is going to be unpacking that big concept out, that Jesus' priesthood is superior to all others that have come before. He's got a better sacrifice. He's got a better temple. He's got a better priesthood. He's got a better covenant. That's kind of where we're going to be going for the next few months. But ultimately this morning, this section kind of opens up for us as we begin to look at the nature and the activity of Jesus' priesthood. He's better than all that have come before. Uh, in fact, if you kind of look with me, you'll see he'll say kind of the first reason, the first aspect of Jesus' priesthood, what he wants us to understand is that the nature of Jesus' priesthood gives you and I confidence to continue to cling to Jesus, and he gives us confidence to continue to approach Jesus. And so he says in verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I think really the first reason that makes Jesus' priesthood superior to all others that have come before is because he is seated as Son. 
He is seated as son. It says in verse 14 that he's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. In in many regards, I think what you're going to see in in verses 14 and 16 is that Jesus as priest is one who has passed through the heavens and therefore he is one who is victorious and he is one who is seated because his work as priest is done. In fact, we saw, we'll see a little bit later on in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, we have this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Every priest that's come before is one who resided in his office on earth. And yet here we have one who's residing in his office as priest in the heavens. And in fact, he's seated because his work is done. Jesus' priesthood is better than all that have come before because he's somewhere where none other are and he's accomplished and finished his work as none other previously had. Jesus' priesthood is better because he's seated as son. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. The grave could not hold him. He was resurrected and therefore he sits in the heavens residing as our priest. We have a priest unlike any other than the nation of Israel ever experienced. Our priest is better than all that have come before. The one who stands in the gap, the one who mediates between us and God is one who is better than all others. And therefore, you and I have confidence to approach God. You and I have confidence to cling to him because he's better than all that have come before. In fact, he says in verse 14 that he is Jesus, the son of God. We've noticed and we've walked through this term multiple times this semester. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? It means that he is God's selected king to come. And what the writer of Hebrews is beginning to do for us here is this this book begins to kind of take a turn is he's going to take all the major offices that that human people had in the Old Testament and he's going to show us that all of them are encapsulated. They're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ in a way that none other had before. Jesus is going to be the best priest that you and I can imagine. Jesus as the Son of God is going to be the best king that you and I can imagine. As we look to chapters 1 and 2, angels, prophets, those who were revealers of the truth of God, who were, in a sense, spokespeople for God, we find that Jesus, as the image of God, is better than all that have come before him. And so as prophet, as priest, and as king, he is superior. For an audience that had a very much of an Old Testament background, these three offices of priest, prophet, and king were critical in their understanding of how God moved through humanity and how he moved through human history. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience is, hey, guess what? Jesus encapsulates and fulfills all of those offices and therefore he is better than all that have come before and he's better than all that will come after. He is the best prophet, revealer of God. He's the best priest, mediator of God. He's the best king, ruler of God that you and I will ever find. And as a result of that, you and I have great confidence to approach him. It is his victory over sin and death that gives us that confidence. Uh, This week, with the the elections that occurred on Tuesday, one of the things that kind of caught my attention on Tuesday night was, uh, a lot of you guys may know that Chet Edwards was replaced by uh, a candidate named uh, Bill Flores. And so in his concession speech, something that caught my attention on Tuesday night was the aide that was going to introduce Chet Edwards before his concession speech and introducing him in the shame of his defeat began to get really, really choked up. In a formal and in a, in a uh, very political uh, moment uh, on air, she began to cry and began to get choked up because there was shame in her defeat and in her representative's defeat. In his defeat, it made it difficult for her to cling and have confidence even to introduce him. And so the awkwardness of the moment and when emotions are in a place that they should not be and not in a scenario and in an opportunity that seems inappropriate, you and I just kind of curl it and shringe at it. And so what you're going to see really for Jesus Christ in his victory, you and I have confidence. If the grave held them, we would have had shame and we would have had a hard time coming to him. But in his victory over sin and death, you and I have great confidence as we approach him. In fact, we have such great confidence that he is one, according to verse 16, that can provide us grace, 
that can provide us mercy in our need, in our time of need. And he can help us. You know, as I was kind of thinking through this passage this morning, I think that for you and I, we realize that he, Jesus Christ is our priest. A lot of us realize that he is the one who is victorious over sin and death, that he took our sin on the cross, that he died in our place, and yet he was resurrected, showing that he had power over sin and death. I think a lot of us know that, and a lot of us get that. I think a lot of us are absolutely confident in his ability to help us and his ability to provide grace and help to us. And yet I think a lot of us, for reasons that I think are unconscious, have a hard time approaching Jesus Christ at times. For some of us, we've never trusted in Jesus Christ, and so we've never even entered into that relationship. A lot of us have a hard time even just approaching for the first time. But a lot of us, even who have already approached Jesus Christ, have a difficulty, I think, in continuing to approach him in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our failures. And the question is why? We realize that he has the ability to forgive. We realize that he has the ability to provide grace and mercy. We realize that he and he alone can help us in our time of need. But I think a lot of us have a hard time in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our failures, approaching him. Why is that? I think what's really interesting and what really this passage caught my attention this week in a way that I've never caught before is that he has a unique ability to provide sympathy to us in our weakness that no other human priest can. In many regards, what you can see in the book of Hebrews in this section this morning is an argument for Jesus' sympathy, and it's going to come at an angle that you and I, I think, often actually maybe unconsciously dismiss. I think for a lot of us, we are absolutely confident in his victory and his ability to help us in need. But I think a lot of us, either consciously or unconsciously, are not absolutely sure that he'll provide us sympathy in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our mess, when we ought to know better, right? Why is it we struggle at times to come to him? In the midst of sin, in the midst of struggle, I think a lot of us wonder, what will he do when he sees our mess? (laughs) If he knew where I was, if he knew what I was thinking, if he knew what I've been through, how would he respond to me? I think the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to make an argument for the sympathy of Jesus Christ in a way and at an angle that I've never gotten until this week. And it really hit me at the core in a way that I've never seen and I've never grasped and it really, really excited me because for many times I've often thought a human failing priest seems more compassionate to me than someone who's righteous and sinless. Someone who's perfect, how in the world do they at all understand and identify with my issues, my mess, my sin, as opposed to someone who has those issues and can understand me, right? I think what we're going to see in Hebrews 4 this morning is that Jesus Christ is going to have a capacity for sympathy that no human priest, even in their failings, has for you and I. Jesus is going to go even one better, not just in his victory, but also in his sympathy. Notice chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Notice, Jesus as our high priest is one who is sympathetic to our plight and to our weakness. He's not one who does not understand. He's not one who does not identify, but he is one who is characterized by sympathy. Not just by victory, but even by sympathy. And so he shares an experience with you and I. He's been tempted in every way that you and I have been. He's not one that doesn't understand our plight. He's not one that doesn't understand our struggles. He's not one that doesn't understand our insecurities and our weaknesses. He's the one who gets it and gets it completely. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue in a way that you and I have maybe never gotten before is that he understands it even more than someone who's experienced it and fallen into sin. In in many regards, Jesus has a shared experience with us in that he has shared and experienced temptation, but he also has an unshared experience that I think actually magnifies his sympathy and does not lessen it. Notice what magnifies his sympathy and what is an unshared experience, according to verse 13, is that he, he encountered every temptation, but yet without sin. 
he experienced the temptations that you and I have, and yet he did not fail, he did not fall into sin. And so there's an aspect of his experience that's shared, and yet there's also an aspect that is unshared. And I think the aspect that is unshared in his sinlessness, it gives him a capacity for sympathy that you and I don't have in our sinfulness. Notice chapter 5, verse 2, I think actually highlights our misunderstanding sometimes. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, speaking of not Jesus Christ, but the human priest, he says, the human priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, that's you and I. (laughs) Makes you feel great, doesn't it? Uh, Since he himself also is beset with weakness. Notice, the human priest in his weakness can identify and have sympathy toward you and I that he represents because he gets our issues. He's dealt with sin and he's fallen to sin as well. He's not perfect, nor are you. He's just as misguided as you and I. In fact, the church or even the nation of Israel, whatever image you want to have at any point in biblical history, the church is far more like a hospital for the wounded in which we're bandaging one another than it is a museum for the perfect, right? If you're here because you think the pastor or you think leaders here in this church are perfect, you're in the wrong place, all right? In some regards, we're just as broken and we're just as helpless and we're just as much struggling as you guys. In fact, we're just hopefully right beside you as we guys walk through this. But this is not a museum for the perfect. It is a hospital for the wounded, all right? And so Jesus Christ, though, for you and I, as we think about that, we often think the people who have fallen are the people who can understand me. They'll have sympathy. They won't judge me, right? And so we think about in our day and time, those that are, in a sense, more righteous, more, more perfect, more moral, are often the ones who judge those who have fallen. So we think of those that haven't committed certain indecent acts, and typically what we see in, our, in human history and human experience is that those are the people who are more self-righteous, more judgmental, more holier than now, more uh, pushing off of those who have issues and have problems. And what you're going to see for Jesus Christ is that in his sinlessness, he doesn't push off. In fact, what he does is he embraces. In his sinlessness, he's going to have greater capacity for sympathy than those who actually do have weakness and do have sin. Well, how does that work? Honestly, for me, as I thought through much of my life, and this is really what was revolutionary for me this week, I've often thought as I've kind of walked through the New Testament, for me, it's the Apostle Paul that for me is often my greatest role model. It's my greatest guy that I feel like I can identify with. He has a thorn in the flesh. He has weaknesses. He has fears. And yet the Lord uses him to accomplish much. And for me, a lot of times I've thought of Jesus Christ as a great teacher, a great example, a great suffering servant. But when I think of him, I don't think of him primarily as one who has sympathy for my issues. (laughs) If I want sympathy for my issues, I go to someone who's also got issues and can understand my issues. I think what the writer of Hebrews is going to do, though, is show us that in his sinlessness, he's actually more sympathetic than those that share in our sinfulness. Why is that? Commentary I was reading this week likened it to this. If you were to take a small pebble and put it on on the coast and allow the tide to come in and take that pebble, that pebble experiences an aspect of the force of of the waves and of the ocean. But it actually doesn't experience the full force and the full strength of the ocean like an immovable rock does that's on that coast. And that through year after year after year, as storms come and as waves come, not just high tide and even low tide, it experiences the fullness of the force of the ocean. So in some regards, the large rock actually has a better understanding of the force of the waves and of the ocean than does the small pebble. The transition, the parallel is this. That him who has actually endured temptation to the full extent and not fallen to it has a fuller understanding of the force of temptation than you and I do that have fallen to it. You and I are like the small pebble on the ocean that gets taken out quickly at times, right? You and I fall quickly. And yet, him who is sinless, who is set on the, on the ocean coast and endured the full brunt of sin, the full brunt of temptation, has a far greater understanding for it and a far greater capacity to be sympathetic towards it. 
Let me give you guys another analogy. Uh, a lot of you guys know that I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, right? So uh, a lot of my Cowboys illustrations have died for obvious reasons this semester, right? Uh, and so yeah, one came to mind this morning, all right? So uh, you would think in the NFL that for a team that's uh, absolutely flopped and a team uh, you know, somewhere else in the NFL that's losing a lot of games, you would think the Dallas Cowboys could sympathize and identify with them, right? I would argue that their capacity for sympathy, though, is short and and, uh, actually falls shorter than a a team that has been victorious. Why? Because a team that's been victorious has a fuller understanding of the scope of adversity and the scope of competition than a team that has folded really quickly, right? (laughs) Like the Dallas Cowboys have, all right? So, for example, a team like Texas A&M that deals with top 10 ranked Oklahoma has a fuller understanding of competition, right, than the Dallas Cowboys because they were victorious, amen, right? What's the point? Victory, sinlessness actually creates a greater capacity for sympathy than falling short. When you and I fall short, we can identify with those that have fallen short, but those that are sinless, those that have endured that temptation, have a fuller understanding for temptation and tribulation than those that have fallen and caved under it. And so Jesus, in his sinlessness, is not holy and separate in such a way that he cannot have sympathy and he cannot identify and he cannot embrace us. I think a lot of us at times struggle to approach him because we fear that he's going to come with judgment and we fear that he will not understand and he will not be sympathetic to our plight. Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to say that in his priestly nature, he is set apart from all other priests, not just in his victory over sin, but also in his capacity for sympathy. He can identify and he can embrace us no matter where we've been and no matter what we're dealing with. And for me, that was revolutionary this week. The idea that his sinlessness creates greater sympathy than our sinfulness that's shared amongst us. Let me, in my struggles, find someone who struggles in the same way so that we can just be pitiful with one another, right? And yet Jesus will say, no, no, no. In my sinlessness, I have greater sympathy for your struggles than someone who's caved under them. I understand it even more than you do as you've caved to it. And not only is he sympathetic, it's not just that he feels bad for us, but what we're going to see in the rest of the passage in chapter 5 is that he's going to respond to fix the problem. He doesn't just put an arm around us and and feel bad for us and say, I'm so sorry, (laughs) What he's going to do is he's going to act so as to fix the problem and to remove us from that plight. Look at me, chapter 5, as we see in a sense that we're going to see that Jesus is selected as our substitute. He's not just seated as a son, he's sympathetic in his sinlessness, and he's also selected as our substitute. Notice the nature of his priesthood is one of selection. He was selected for this job. Chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Notice the nature of Jesus' priesthood is that he was selected for it. He was taken from among men. He was appointed by God. Notice verse 4. And no one takes the honor of priesthood to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So in the Old Testament, the priesthood was one that you were selected for, you were appointed for. You couldn't just go and take it and grab it for yourself. And Jesus Christ fulfills that principle as well. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but the Father selected him and appointed him to that role. In college, I tried in many regards to come up with nicknames to represent me, and then I tried to market them uh, to the wider public, all right? So one of the tricks I always had as I'd come into a grace here as a student, as people were doing name tags, I'd always try to pawn off my nickname of T-Bone. So they'd ask me my name. Typically, the name tag person has their head down. They write the T, and then they get really confused. They look up, and I kind of keep rolling with it. I just want to go with T-Bone. So I actually tried through college to market my own nicknames of T-Bone, T-Dog, and even T-Thug at one time, all right? Now... Your laughter is such because it doesn't work, right? You cannot market your own nickname. It just doesn't work, okay? You've got to have someone else select for you a nickname that's going to represent you and market it for you, right? All right, same thing with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You cannot, be, you cannot select yourself for this. 
We're going to see, at least from the Old Testament, even from Jesus' priesthood, he was selected for it. And it's not just one of selection we find, it's also one of representation. Verse 1, he was taken from among men and, and appointed on behalf of men. Notice the priesthood is such that one must be representative of humanity, which again makes the case for why Jesus Christ had to be God and man and why the priest that would represent humanity before God had to be both God and man. We'll kind of talk through that here in a minute when we talk about substitution. But Jesus Christ was in the nature of humanity so he could represent humanity. But why was he representing humanity? What was he going to do on behalf of humanity? We find that kind of follows through the end of verse 1. He was uh, taken from among men, appointed on behalf of man, and things pertaining to God in order. Here's what he was all about. Here's what his priesthood, here's what his activity was. To offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice verse 3. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And so what we see is you look at the priesthood for the Old Testament was their job was to represent humanity and to provide a suffering substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of humanity. So as you look at the Old Testament, what did the priests of God do over and over again? Do you look at the Old Testament laws, you look through your Old Testament, what the priests of God did is they represented man, as they were selected by God, as they offered a substitute sacrifice for man's sins. And so throughout the Old Testament, you have priests killing all kinds of animals, uh, getting their blood out, and then, in a sense, year after year, sprinkling on an altar as it would be a covering over humanity's sin. And so as God looked down from the heavens and he looked on humanity's sin, that blood was a covering over humanity's sin. And so animals' blood was shed. There was a suffering substitute that was in place of man's sin. But the problem in the Old Testament was that sacrifice, year after year, that blood would flake off the altar seat and would have to be reapplied. So every year, once a year, the high priest Aaron or the high priest that would proceed or follow after him would go into the temple and they would offer a sacrifice and they'd sprinkle blood onto the altar. And yet year after year, that blood would dry and would flake away and have to be reapplied. And here comes Jesus Christ and his offering and his sacrifice is a whole lot better. We're going to see this a little bit later on in the book of Hebrews, but it's a whole lot better because it does not have to be offered year after year after year. It's offered once and once only because it only required one sacrifice of his own sacrifice to be sufficient to forgive man of their sin. And so what you're going to see is that Jesus Christ's sacrifice wasn't just sufficient to be offered once, but it was even better than all others because his sacrifice was not the blood of animals and bulls and goats, but it was the sacrifice of his own flesh. Look with me, verse seven, verses 7 and 10 begin to describe his own activity as priest. It says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk a little bit later about Melchizedek and uh, have a whole morning for that. Get excited. It's going to be awesome, all right? Melchizedek, look for that. Mark your calendars, all right? But what's the point? Uh, the activity of Jesus' priesthood, what did he do? He offered sacrifices just like every other high priest, but his sacrifice was of a whole different kind. It wasn't of the, bull, it wasn't of the blood of bulls, animals, and goats, but it was the blood of his own. It was the blood of one who was shed, who was sinless, and so he acts as the very sacrifice that is substitutionary for you and I. The sacrifice that we should have paid, he paid for us. The place that we should have gone, he went for us. The price that we were supposed to have paid, he paid for us. And so he acts as our suffering substitute sacrifice for you and I. So his priesthood is one that is incredibly better. 
And as a result of that, it's not just that he was selected as a substitute. It's not just that he's seated as the son. It's not just that he's sympathetic as sinless. But in light of all of that, you and I are to have confidence to approach him and to find grace and to find mercy and to find help in our time of need because there's no priest, there's no mediator, there's no who stands in the gap that goes where we cannot go than that does what we cannot do like he does for us. Jesus is incredibly different. He's incredibly better. Uh, honestly, this, this uh, past month, I realized that I probably am watching absolutely no news, okay? Uh, about a month ago, I was watching SportsCenter, where I get most of my news, and I found out about the 33 miners who were <laughs> trapped in Chile, all right? Uh, I found out from SportsCenter, right? Uh, how did I find out? Well, uh, the day that they all got uh, escaped, the, uh, the day they all got rescued, one guy who apparently had a, a background in uh, the Chilean soccer team comes out with a Chilean national anthem, and they think it's hilarious, sports-related, and so they put it on SportsCenter, right? I was on that day that I realized that for the last two months, there's some uh, miners trapped and, and buried in Chile, all right? Had no clue up until that point, all right? But I thought it was a great image. It was a great picture, though. Here you have 33 miners buried 2,300 feet underneath the earth, and they have no escape whatsoever. And ultimately, after about 17 days, they finally make contact with them and discover that they're all alive. And then over the next month and a half, a plan is made and executed to not just get them food, but then eventually to get them uh, rescued. And so a shaft is built, it's barricaded, and a rescue capsule is lowered. And eventually, uh, every half hour, uh, one miner is brought up. By the time, after 24 hours, all 33 miners were evacuated and rescued. And as you looked at the news, and as I looked a little bit more broadly after I saw Sports Center, I realized that the nation and the globe has been following this, all right? And it's been uplifting not just to Chile, but internationally. And yet I thought, as uplifting as that is, even more miraculous, though, is what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. These miners were trapped, and you and I, and in some ways, have an incredibly worse plight. Although I cannot imagine anything worse than being buried alive. Uh, but in many regards, it's a great picture of what is our condition in sin. You and I have been buried alive in our mess, and a lot of us, I think even right now, feel at times trapped by our mess, our weakness, our insecurity, and our sin. I don't know what it is that makes you feel like you've been buried. I know for me in junior high, high school, and a lot of college, for me, it was absolutely insecurity. I felt absolutely buried by that struggle. I felt I had no option. I felt I had no freedom. And for some of us, it's not just that we can't figure out how to get free from a struggle. For some of us, we feel our struggle is such or to such an extent that God would never forgive that. If only he knew where we've been. If only he knew what I've done. If only he knew what I've looked at. If only he knew who I've been with. A lot of us think if that's the case, then there's no way Jesus would forgive that. And what I love, though, you think about that picture of the miners, though, is it's not just that Jesus came up with a great plan to build a shaft and a capsule to get all of us out from our struggle, but what was even more miraculous about his struggle and what he did on our behalf is that he buried himself for you and I. He took the place where you and I were, and he suffered the death that should have been ours. And the result of that, it's not just that we're freed from the penalty of that struggle. It's not just that we can be reconciled and, and declared no longer guilty, but he even provides us in his resurrection and in the life that we're united to and way out from those struggles and freedom from them. If you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling with insecurity, if you're struggling with sexual addictions or depression, a lot of y'all feel an absolute weight of guilt. <laughs> and what I want you guys to hear this morning from the, in light of the nature of Jesus Christ's priesthood is that he's forgiven you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. You can have confidence to approach him because where you will what you will find as you approach him in light of the death that he's died, in light of the resurrection that he's found, is a peace and mercy that you will find nowhere else. He's not a judge in his holiness that stands apart and pushes us away, that if we come in faith, coming on the basis of his own death, that he buried himself for you and I, we find forgiveness of sins and we find eternal life. And it's found nowhere else. Because there's no one else that could stand in that gap. There's no one else that could go where we could not go. There's no one else that could pay the price that we could not pay. Only him. 
It's not found in doing a bunch of good works. It's not found in earning his favor. It's found only in an embrace and an approach to one who's paid the cost for you and I. And a lot of us have already found that place. A lot of us have already come to a place that we've trusted in Jesus Christ and found eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And for those of us that are there, a lot of us feel even more guilty that we're still struggling with certain sins. A lot of us feel even more guilty that we're still trapped by certain struggles, weaknesses, and failures. And I want you guys to hear this morning is in light of the nature of Christ's priesthood, he is sympathetic even if you've already come to him and he's sympathetic to embrace you and allow you to find not just forgiveness but even freedom from those struggles. He is a restorer and he's a redeemer. He's a savior and he's a remaker. That is his business. That's what he's all about. And I think for a lot of us this morning, I think the reason why I love this passage, the reason why it really kind of opened up for me this morning as I thought about it is I think a lot of us don't view him in his capacity for sympathy. A lot of us think that if we, if we only knew, if we only came close enough where he could see as if he can't see what we're doing or where we are, he would stiff arm us and push us away. And yet what I love about his sympathy is that he took the initiative to stand in our place and to pay the price that we could not pay even before we ever thought about coming to him. Romans 5 will say that when we were hostile in our sins, when we were enemies of the cross of Christ, he died on our behalf. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he died on our behalf and he took our place because he loved us and he came near to us and he took the initiative when we had and wanted nothing to do with him. And if he did that, then surely if we would approach him, he'll come and we'll respond with sympathy, with grace, and with mercy. I think that's revolutionary for a lot of us as we view him in his sinlessness as if he's going to be all the more judgmental. I think in his sinlessness, he has a greater understanding of the temptations, the weaknesses, and the struggles of our flesh as one who lived in our flesh. He gets it, he identifies, and he actually identifies and has so much sympathy that he's moved to not just forgive us, but even to restore us. So this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to wrap up. But if you're wrestling with some stuff, I'd love just for you guys to feel free to come up forward. We're going to have a couple people up here that would be willing to pray with you guys. I, as always, would always be willing to pray and talk with you guys. If you're dealing with some stuff, you just want to pray, feel free to come forward. If you guys want to bug out, that's great. But let me pray for us, and we'll wrap up this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks that you are our Savior, and you're our Remaker, um, that you are our Creator, you are our Savior, and you are our Restorer. I thank you that you forgive and you free. And Father, I pray for a lot of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we've been, no matter who we've been with, no matter what we've seen, Lord, I pray this morning for some of us that you would move us to a place, maybe for the first time in our life, that we would approach you, we'd come and we'd ask for forgiveness and that you'd bring us into a relationship with you. We thank you for the death of your son, that in the days of his flesh, he suffered so that we would not have to. He died the death that should have been ours. And so I ask for a lot of us this morning that you would draw us into a relationship with you, maybe for the first time. For those of us who have already made that decision and have already moved into that place, Lord, I pray that you would remind us afresh this morning that in the nature of your priesthood as one who intercedes for us, as one who is our advocate, Lord, I pray that you would remind us afresh that you understand our struggles and that you redeem us not just from our past sins, but even our present sins and even our future sins, as if you don't know. You see it all, you know it all, you knew it before us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a freedom to approach you in a way that we've not had maybe even in a long time. And that you give us a confidence that when we approach you, that what we'll find is grace, what we'll find is mercy, what we'll find is help. No matter the struggle, no matter the issue. And Father, I pray that you would give us that peace, that confidence, and that we would continue to cling to you, no matter what our culture says, no matter what our heart says, that you would remind us of truth and that you would draw us near. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thank you, guys. You guys have a great week.